Hello, everybody. Uh, so good to be here with you all. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dan. I'm part of the senior leadership team here at Lyft, and I'm excited to get into the world with you today. So over the summer, Robin has been introducing this uh, new kind of, not really preaching series, but rather preaching the daily devos we were going through that week. It's been super helpful, and we're going to kind of continue that. Uh, so today we're looking at Nehemiah. Specifically, this week's devos covered five whole chapters, so we're not going to be going over all five chapters, uh, but we're going to be focusing in on some specific moments and kind of looking at that as a whole. Um, so before we do anything first, uh, I'd love to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. God, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is so rich and there's so much to unpack, um, that it seemingly is never ending with the riches that we can discover out of it. Um, I pray today that we can just leave here uh, a little bit more appreciating what, what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So let's get to it. So for those of you that might just be jumping in with us, uh, a little bit of history. So Nehemiah uh, is a book that actually is connected with the book right before it called Ezra. Uh, and basically, this uh, Ezra and Nehemiah together tell the story of the nation of Israel who was in exile, them coming home and rebuilding their city. And it kind of goes in three main parts where it, Ezra first focuses on uh, a priest named Zerubbabel who kind of comes and uh, builds the temple. Ezra comes and rebuilds kind of like the culture. And Nehemiah is coming and building a wall. Where we're at, Nehemiah, from 9 to 13, which is sort of this week's of Devos, is sort of the conclusion of all three of those. And so finally, uh, the temple's been rebuilt, the culture's been rebuilt, the wall's been built. All of these had different struggles in the middle, but we're kind of just getting to the end. And what happens is they open up the word... And focusing on chapter 9, which was Monday and Tuesdays, after coming, they decide to come and communally as a, as a community. Uh, they come and issue forth this song of repentance. They come together, and after everything's done, they, they confess their sins. In the CSB, it calls it uh, the National Confession of Sin. And so that's where I kind of want to focus in today. Um, both on why they're repenting, but then also what we can kind of take from this and learn about the topic of repentance. And so focusing in, the chapter 9 kind of goes through and illustrates time and time again this cycle that the nation of Israel has been kind of going through. The cycle of that they will be doing well and that God has blessed the nation of Israel and they're prospering. And then at the height of their prospering, at the height of their nation, they start to think that their life's pretty good and they start to reject God and they start to ignore God. And all of a sudden, as they start to do that, things are okay for a time, but then things start to go downhill and downhill. And then eventually things get very, very bad. And then they cry out to God again and then God kind of rescues them from this bad place. And then they reform all their ways and they come back to God and they repent and they kind of get into a place of like, things are great again. And then when things are great for a while, they start to ignore God. And it's this cycle that it kind of goes through and it illustrates the cycle about two, three times kind of through this of the different history. It goes all the way back to Moses leading them out of Egypt and then some of the rebellion they did there. And then it goes to some other times with the Mormon kings. And then finally, this last exile where the nation of Israel had ignored God and that's what ultimately led them to the exile. And so they're coming back now that they've done this. They're acknowledging before God 
what led them to the exile in the first place. And so as we look at this cycle and as we look at a little bit more detail in this passage, um, I think this is a beautiful lesson on the, the idea of repentance. We, as a church, often talk about our mission is to see made people made fully alive in the hope of Jesus. And repentance is a part of that. The gospel, the good news, it's, it's super multifaceted and it's extremely personal, but an immutable part of the gospel is that we were dead in our sin and we need to be made alive. Now, the word repentance comes from a Greek word that carries this connotation of like changing of direction. Part of accepting Jesus as Lord is this idea of changing the direction from my way to Jesus's way. And so what does this practically look like? We're going to go and dive in. But the first piece of repentance that we see in this, this chapter nine is that repentance begins with acknowledging God's goodness. You could also say it begins with worship. And we see this all the way through chapter nine. Verse six is just a snippet. It'll, it's all through, but it says, you Lord are the only God. You created the heavens the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to all of them and all the stars of heaven worship you. Honestly, the vast majority of, of chapter nine is all directed towards praising God, talking about God's goodness, talking about God's power. We see it basically verses six through 15, 20 to 25, 30 to 35. So much of this is praising God. And at first glance, it seems a little odd because this entire section is called the confession of sin, but it doesn't spend that much time talking about the sin. In fact, it spends about 65, 70% of the entire time instead praising God. The first 10 verses are all about God's power and righteousness. And that's because in order to repent, in order to change directions, we need an acknowledgement that my way is bad, but more importantly, that God's way is good. Jesus said he is the truth, the way, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And so in order to repent, the first thing we need to do is understand that, like, no, God is true, that there is truth, and it's found in Jesus, that, that Jesus is the way that it's only in him we're made fully alive. Repentance begins with an acknowledgement of who God is, of his character. And that includes his power, that includes his righteousness, but it also includes his goodness. It means that we can't agree to disagree. In order to repent, we need to acknowledge that like, hey, I am wrong. Truth does exist. It's not relative. And this is why we begin with, with worship. It's because it needs to, we need to rather, remind our hearts of how big and how good God is. Because in the moments, it can be hard to realize that he is good. It reminds us that, that he is the way, not our way.
see, especially there's there's a North American kind of cultural impetus that that truth is relative. More than that, that that how we feel is where truth can be found. And that is where we look for truth and truth is inside of ourselves. But fundamentally, in order to repent, we need to abandon that that cultural lie, frankly. There is a truth, but it isn't found in us. It's found in him. And here's the, the coolest part about this passage. What I love about the Israelites in this passage is that they acknowledged God's goodness even through the hard times in their history. We can see this in verses 30 and, and, and 31. Um, this is the nation of Israel calling out about their history, saying that you were patient with them, like the nation of Israel, their ancestors, for many years, and your spirit warned them through the, your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. This is calling back through their history. There's quotes to Exodus here, but even in the midst of, of them being taken into exile, the nation of Israel, they're, they're proclaiming that God was gracious. He was compassionate. And this kind of leads me to the next step of repentance is that when we begin and we, when, when we acknowledge how good God is, it means that we, it continues into a recognition of our own responsibility about how we aren't good. And that's the second step. Repentance requires an acceptance of responsibility, specifically responsibility for who we are and also what we've done. Responsibility for what happens to us. See, through this passage, the Israelites take responsibility for all the bad that has befallen them. And you can see how this kind of goes hand in hand with God's goodness. See, if God is completely good, then the reason evil is found in the world is because of us. Like there is the enemy fundamentally, yes, but, but we're the cause of the wrong in the world. It's us, it's humanity, it's, it's me. If truth isn't relative and if it's found in God and not me, then fundamentally it means that I'm probably wrong most of the time. In fact, anytime I'm relying on myself, I'm likely wrong. And the only time I am right is when I am choosing to follow his way and not mine. And this is a difficult truth to accept because we put so much value in performance, into being right, into doing the right thing, into doing things well. See, it's really nice to believe we're fundamentally good people. But repentance, and, and by extension, the gospel, requires that we accept that we're not fundamentally good people. Yes, we are made in the image of God, and that is good, but we are dead in sin, and our goodness comes from God. We're made righteous in Him, not from what we do, but from what Jesus did, dying on that cross for us. In order to repent, we need to accept responsibility for the fact that, that we're dead in our sin. 
and it becomes the most clear, again, kind of near the end of this passage in verse 34 to 37. So it talks about the leaders in the past. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings that you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them in the spacious and fertile land that you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Again, that cycle, God is doing good, God has blessed them, and then in that blessing they choose to just basically serve themselves and to, and to lean into wicked ways. So it continues in 36. So here we are today, slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. And here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. So we can see there's like an explicit mention of, hey, the leaders didn't follow you. And so that's why the bad things are happening to us. And we can understand that. But, but there's also a layer underneath this that goes all the way back in their history to the book we call First Samuel. Now in First Samuel, the nation of Israel decided that they want to be like all the other people groups that surrounded them and they wanted a king. And so they go to the prophet at the time, Samuel, and there's like, hey, Samuel, we want a king. And he talks to God and God's like, hey, guys, a king's going to be a, like a really bad idea. If you go and you want to be like all the other nations and you're going to accept a king, they're going to rule over you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to make slaves of you. It's going to be caused like bad lineages. It, kings are going to be a bad idea. Continue just being led by me. This is God talking to them. And they're like, no, 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 we want a king. We want a king. And so God gives them a king. And he originally said Saul, and that doesn't go well. And then he gives David, which goes really well for a time, and then it starts going really, really poorly. And then Solomon, which goes really well for a time, and then goes really, really poorly. And the nation of Israel themselves had this history of, of a bunch of kings kind of failing, most of them. Um, but now, they're now the kings that are over them are now other kings that are ruling over them, making slaves of them. And there's this call back to that in verse 37 of these kings that we wanted, that you said was a bad idea, but that we fervently asked you for. They're the ones hurting us and they're the ones persecuting us. And so we understand, God, that it is not you being mean that causes, but rather us and our sin that caused this. But here's the thing. This group of Israelites that are rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the wall, this national confession of sin. Not a single person here would have been the, one of the ones that wanted a king. That was, uh, my math might be a little off, I believe it was around 500 years earlier. Not a single person there was responsible. None of them had a choice on whether or not they wanted a king or not. Many of these people would have been born in exile. They weren't even the people that caused them to be exiled. And yet they come and they come before God and take responsibility that they as a nation wanted a king instead of God. Despite not being the cause of that specific moment, they still take responsibility for it. 
And this is a crucial part to this idea of understanding how we take responsibility for sin in the world is that it is not just an individual pursuit. You see, I'm not going to be the cause of all the bad things that are going to happen in my life, and, and neither are you, at least not the direct cause. If you're walking down the street and you get mugged, that, that, that wasn't your fault. It wasn't. Even if there's precipitating causes, even if you're like, oh, I shouldn't know, like, like that wasn't ultimately directly your fault. And so the responsibility you take isn't that you're the one that went and mugged somebody, but rather it's that we all hurt people. We are all sinful and we all perpetuate both systems and also behaviors that are focused on myself and not others. Jesus calls this out on the Sermon on the Mount, how it says, like, he calls it out and says, oh, like, it's, you've heard it said, don't murder people. But if you even look at somebody with anger in your heart, that's murder. And what Jesus is doing is calling to this, this point that deep in our hearts, when we put ourselves first, that always will lead to hurt others. And that will lead to hurt others. And that will lead to hurt others. And so in a real roundabout way, the sin that we all contribute to, that we all live in, hurts us all. And so we take responsibility for everything, for everyone. We are all sinful and we all hurt people. If you get mugged, it's not your fault. But key to this, key to this is that it's also not God's fault. It's our fault. We are sinful. And so repentance means accepting that God is right and just and good and that we are not. And by extension, I am not. So often we like to separate ourselves from from different things, but especially one we hear a lot is the church. It's like, oh, the church should do this. The church will... There's a collective responsibility because we are the church. You and I are the church. And so if somebody was hurt by the church, if I was hurt by the church, I need to take responsibility that, oh, I was part of what hurt me. Even if I wasn't the one that did it, I need to take responsibility for that. It's not fair. And and I get that. And there's like a part of me that rebels against this, but it's not fair. But ultimately, it is the way of Jesus. See, the gospel is that Jesus came down and despite not being guilty of anything, took all of that guilt upon himself. That's what Jesus did. When he died on the cross for our sins, that, that wasn't fair, but it was right and it was good. And so when we want to follow Jesus, we do the thing that isn't fair, but, but is good. And that kind of leads me to my next point is that repentance begins with an acknowledging of how good God is and how good his way is. It's followed by an acknowledgement that we're dead in our sin and taking responsibility for the things that happened in our own lives and taking responsibility for, for the things that other people did as well. And then it includes a change of action. 
See, now we get to the part where we change. I started off talking about how repentance is a change of direction. And we start going this way and then we go this way. I was going my way and then I see that Jesus' way is good and better and that my way is bad. And so I changed direction. Finally here, this is the step. Look at us, guys. We did it. We see this in, in verse 38. Uh, in view of all of this, we're making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites and priests. And Wednesday's devos, we flipped over to the next day in chapter 10. It goes in through the details of the vow. We're not going to get into there. But repentance includes a change of action. We all know someone who has apologized for something like a thousand times, a thousand times, but never changed. And, and realistically, after a while, we, we stop taking these apologies seriously. It's just what we do. If somebody apologizes and they do the same thing right afterwards, we get to the point where we're not really sure if they even mean the apology. And that's because as much as intentions are important, actions are also important. Faith that works is dead. And so we can't just believe that Jesus' way is better. We need to start following it. And guess what? It, we're not going to be perfect. But if somebody apologizes a thousand times, but then after every apology, you see them make small steps and they keep on messing up, but we see them taking these steps and we see them trying to do better. Also, we're a lot more patient. Also, we understand that, like, hey, you know what? People mess up, but they apologize and like, hey, I'm trying. And they go and they put guardrails in and they're trying to do better. And that trying completely changes how we take that person's apology. It seems so much more genuine. It seems from the heart because that action they take fundamentally is putting their money where their mouth is. That action they take is proving that they believe what they're saying. Apologizing, repenting by their very nature include a change of action. Following Jesus isn't just about intellectual assent, but choosing to follow his way. He says, um, even the demons believe in that Jesus is the son of God, but they're certainly not following him. It's not just about acknowledging his way, but walking down it. And guess what? We're going to mess up. And that's okay. We're going to constantly mess up, but it's about trying to leave the path we're on and follow his path. That's repentance. That's becoming fully alive, being raised from death to life. And that's the beauty of it is that we'll, we'll follow his way and then we'll trip and we'll fall off the trail and we'll get back up and we'll like brush ourselves off and we'll try following down and we'll take a wrong turn and we try to get back and then we'll walk down his path a little bit more and then we'll get distracted by like a pretty flower off the road and we'll go off on the road and it turns out that pretty flower was actually this giant carnivorous plant that was baiting a trap to try to eat us and then we'll get in there and we'll scream up to God for help and then he'll come and help us and then we'll get back on the way and then we'll like keep on walking down his way and we'll constantly go in that cycle of following his path and then messing up. But as long as we continue kind of focusing back on that path, on trying to come back to him and following his way, on coming to the feet of Jesus, 
That's repentance. You see, this idea that we're going to mess up, but we keep on needing to, to readjusting and, and re-repenting is actually part of repentance as well. And that's my fourth point, is that repentance is a continual process. It's not just a one and done thing. The first decision to leave our path and follow Jesus is that's important. It is vital. And I can't possibly minimize just how big of a step that is. But that's the first step down this journey, not the last one. We need to continue to decide to follow that path every day of our lives, to continue to repent, to following the way of Jesus every day of our lives. I like to think of it like GPS. Somebody probably gave me this illustration a long time ago, and I, I forget who, but when, I, when I've decided to like follow a certain path, I plug it into the GPS, and it's constantly checking to make sure that I'm continuing on that path. And then if I have to get off for a second, it'll freak out and do all the things, but like, if you ever find ourselves off the right way, it will redirect and help us get back on the track. See, we see this in the Israelites, the, the cycle they talk about is part of that journey. It goes through three cycles they, where they constantly mess up. And then after dealing with the consequences, because we have to deal with the consequences sometimes, they, they come back to God. And it's the same with us. We are constantly going to mess up, but then we come back to God. We redirect back onto his path, his way. And sometimes the consequences we have to deal with are, are pretty small, and sometimes we're nearly eaten by giant carnivorous plants, but, but ultimately our response needs to be coming back to Jesus, repenting and choosing his way to acknowledge that his path, while narrow, is, is good. Romans 12 talks about being trans, be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And that's not a one and done thing. We're constantly being transformed, both individually, but also collectively as a church. The same humility that acknowledges that God's way is good and ours is not needs to also acknowledge that we're going to mess up on this road, but also that we probably don't even have a complete understanding of, of what God's way even is. So both as we mess up, but also as we learn more about Jesus, we need to continue to repent and follow Jesus's way. We have chosen his path, but the more we grow closer to Jesus, the clearer we can see his path and the more we need to direct it even more specifically. And this all leads me to my final point today. See, the Israelites were a great example about how repentance is continual. It's that cycle. And Devos this week, we got to see that cycle in action. So chapter nine, they go and have this national confession of sin. Chapter 10, they go and they like detail, okay, hey, this is how we're going to live differently. We're going to be good. Chapter 11 is them called Resettling Jerusalem and getting some of the organization. Chapter 12 is them going and having a big celebration about what God has done and it's great. And then chapter 13 is them completely messing everything up. Nehemiah went back because this whole story began with Nehemiah was technically an aid to uh, a separate king. 
and then asked him for permission to rebuild the wall. So we had to go back for a little bit of time. And then he finally gets a leave of absence again. So he comes back to Jerusalem after being gone for a little bit. And everybody's doing the exact opposite thing than they said that they were going to do. People are fundamentally, it's like some of it's like funnily specific. It's like, hey, God, we're not going to do this specific thing. And then they go and do that specific thing. Things like buying or selling stuff on the Sabbath from other nations. And then they go and they're setting up markets on the walls that Nehemiah built to do that. So Nehemiah goes all of chapter 13 and he sort of is walking back and forth. He's like, God, just remember, like, I tried, God, I tried. And then he's going and like yelling at a bunch of people. Um, and so we get to see this, this cycle where it happened kind of fast this time, but right as the nation of Israel is doing great again, they kind of forget about God and they go back and they start completely rejecting him. And it's another loop of this cycle. And this cycle actually continues and it rolls forward. And we see this happen a couple more times. See, no matter how hard we try in our own effort, we're always going to fail. We'll always follow the same path of the Israelites. And that's because repentance is only ever completed in Jesus. And I say completed for like very specific. See, it's not that the Israelites totally failed in the repentance, but rather that they were waiting for Jesus. He's the one that brings that cycle to a close. Repentance is ultimately only possible with him. This entire sermon we've been talking about following Jesus's way. Our way is bad. Jesus's way is good. Well, we need to know his way in order to follow his way. Without him walking down that path, without him making a way possible for us, there would be no way for us to follow. This is what radically separates repentance from simply just trying to be a better person. It's not us acting different out of our own effort. It's not, uh, not us picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's a humble pursuit of Jesus' way because we see just how good he is and how good his way is. The Israelites continued in this cycle. As mankind by ourselves, we were always going to fail until Jesus. He came down and became human so he could succeed where every other human would fail. See, it's not just that, that he was God and did this, but rather that, that he was God and he became human. See, part of all these things is that it, the nation of Israel had a, had a job, had a role to play. They had made a bargain with God. And part of that bargain was that they were supposed to be a light to the world. They were supposed to behave in a certain way, but they, they were meant to be heralds. They were meant to be people that would eventually save the world. But they constantly couldn't, couldn't live up to that. We as humanity couldn't live up to that end of the bargain. And so God became human so that he could hold up our end of the bargain for us. Whenever I think of, of this, I, I just have this kind of picture in my head where like humanity as a whole is, 
has made a deal and we're like sitting at a counter at like some sort of store and, and ready to pay pay Jesus what we were owed and what we had agreed on. And we're like, we just, we just don't have the money. And he goes and like hops across the counter and then walks around and puts on like a pair of those like dumb glasses with like the nose and then pays for us and then goes and runs around the counter again. Cause I don't know. I, I think it's a funny picture, but that's fundamentally what God did is that he became human so that he could pay the price that we never could. See, this is why repentance is such good news. This is why the book of Nehemiah is good news, even though the fact it ends on a sour knot. In fact, not even despite the fact that it ends on a sour knot, but almost because it ends on a sour knot. And the good news is that without Jesus, it'll always end sour. But Jesus has made himself accessible to all, and he has done something that we never could this incredible, unfair sacrifice, but good sacrifice. And so because he did that, we now can follow him and hopefully unfairly sacrifice for others. All we need to do is follow that path. And so that's where I want to end. We kind of went through five chapters, spent a long time in chapter nine, but ended in chapter 13 and ultimately ended on how good Jesus is and how he broke this cycle. Actually, he didn't break it, rather, but that he completed it. And so I want to kind of give us two calls to action today. The first is that if you're already a follower of Jesus, I invite you to continue that process of repentance. Specifically, I want to call you to continue this and start at the beginning. Spend some time really acknowledging just how good Jesus's way is. Every single one of us is on our own journeys. And as part of that journey, things, things become hard. Sometimes we're confused about things. Maybe the hardness isn't a hardness in our lives or hardness in our hearts, but it's a, us trying to figure out how how God's way is good in this area that we don't understand. Maybe it's just that life has been really hard recently. Maybe it's that our own heart is hard, but no matter where we're at, God's goodness is the same. And so let us together proclaim just how good God is. And let that be the beginning of our repentance, that even if we're confused, even if we don't see it, even if we don't know how, proclaiming. I think of the song 10,000 Reasons, where we just tell our souls to praise God because he is so good. There's 10,000 reasons to praise his name and, and forevermore, even when we don't see it. So that's, that's my call to action is that if, if you're struggling, if you're kind of working through it, or even if you're not, just a reminder to ourselves, to our own souls, just how good God is. And now if you're not a follower of Jesus, my, my call to action for you is to, to join us on this journey. Um, it's a narrow path. It's, it's not always, always the, the, the smoothest, but... It's, it's a good path. It's a good way. 
because Jesus is a good God. And so I want to invite you to take that leap to, to acknowledge that, our, that, that your way without Jesus is, is ultimately not good and his way is. And choose to, to follow him. Um, and if you make that decision, um, I invite you to connect with somebody. Uh, all of our regions, uh, you can go and talk to the leader, uh, the scourge there. Um, or if you uh, came with somebody, talk to that person, talk to your simple church leader if you're in a simple church. But I invite you to take that leap because you won't regret it. Cool, let's pray. God, you are so good. Uh, I, don't, I don't have much else to say besides that, but God, I just come and I, I thank you for for letting me and giving me the honor of, of preaching this passage just so that I, I personally got to study just how good you are. I pray that you aid us in these steps because all these steps are only possible through you and your Holy Spirit. And so God, let, let us all continually just come back to follow your way. Amen. Well, church, uh, appreciate you all. Um, thanks for uh, jumping into the word with me. And uh, we'll see you next week. Be blessed, church. Take care.